these missionaries are about to go out and to do in their Jerusalem that God has called them to do is to try to find faithful men that they can impart the word of God to and raise up leaders that can go and reach their own people. And we just want to have a small part in that. Um, a national pastor, these are men that are indigenous to whatever country the missionary is in. Um, and so these men are, are, are won by missionaries for the most part and trained and sent out to start churches. By faith, these men are going out and planting churches without our help, uh, without the American, American money's help. Um, they're just going out and doing what God has called them to do. What's happening, though, is that they're having to work secular jobs. So my wife and I have helped start two churches here in the U.S., and I, I work secularly as we try to help uh, and do all that we could to help the church get off the ground. That's happening all over the world with pastors. But instead of making a decent living like I was able to do, many times they're, they're making pennies compared to what uh, we are accustomed to, but even for them. And they're having to work 60, 70, 80 hours a week uh, to provide for their family and then also trying to get a church off the ground. That's very difficult. And so this is where we want to step in and find pastors that have been vetted by missionaries that have trained them uh, and try to help fund them for two to three years by churches and individuals here in the U.S. so that those men don't have to work a secular job and they can devote themselves fully to soul winning, to discipling new believers, to trying to build a church. And as they do everything in their own power that they can do, we know that, the, that God says um, that if we lift up Jesus, he's going to draw all men to him. Uh, and as they have the opportunities to do that ministry work in that period of two to three years, oftentimes, and we've been able to see now the fruit of that, those churches are be able to become self-supporting, be able to take care of their own pastor. Just this last month in Nigeria, there were, uh, in fact, I saw his card in the back, Mark, uh, Mark Holmes, one of the missionary partners that we work with. Um, he has recommended national pastor to us. We have supported about 15 of them to this point in Nigeria. Just this last month, three of those pastors no longer need funding because their churches have grown to the point that they're able to take care of their own pastor. And that is, that is our goal. We don't want to support um, these pastors for life, and we don't want them to be relying on the American church and the American dollar, but we do want to help them get off the ground, and that's what our ministry uh, is all about. So please pray along with us. My wife and I, what we're going to be doing with the ministry is a little bit more of the on-the-ground training uh, of the pastors that we work with. So we're going to basically be going to Central and South America, uh, and spending six months at a time in one location with a missionary family that our ministry partners with, helping them further train the national pastors that we already work with. And then my heartbeat is to see new, church plant, new churches planted. So when we have a young, especially young couples that are just getting out of Bible institutes and they're going out to plant a church, often in a village that they've never lived or don't know anybody, we want to go alongside them and help them for a couple months as they get churches off the ground. So that is our, our heartbeat for, this, for our ministry is to see the pastors that we work with be more rooted and grounded in the truth of God's word. The reason is uh, that Paul says in, in, um, in Philippians um, 4, the reason he says that we need to ground the men in, in, the, in the word of God is that so they, don't, they aren't swayed with every wind of doctrine. Um, and often, and, and these men, some of these that have, that, like Brother Mike, who, have, who labored on the foreign field for years can, t can tell you, when you get out on the foreign field, especially in third world country, um, it's very easy for, for churches to, to, to get their doctrine swayed very quickly. From workspace salvation to abuses of charismatic gifts, it's very prevalent, especially in the third world. What we want to do is we want to ensure that the pastors that we work with and the missionaries that we can help, that we can help ground those men in the word of God so that when that false doctrine does try to creep itself into the church, that they can give an answer. 95% of the pastors worldwide have had no, zero theological training, meaning that they have been one to the Lord and they have a zeal and they're excited, but no one has had the opportunity to train them and to teach them the Bible. So they go out oftentimes on their own. Um, without much training, and that's when their churches can get off, get off course very quickly. So that's our, our heartbeat is to try to see that the men that we work with stay doctrinally pure according to the word of God. Uh, we have been on the road about six months, and, and the Lord has really blessed us with um, finding churches to partner with us. 
Please pray for us. We've got a three-year-old and an 11-week-old, so we are running around the country in a Dodge Caravan with a newborn, so my poor wife um, is, is taking the brunt of that. As I just drive down the road with my earphones in, as we hear uh, the, the wailing baby as I'm listening to a sermon or a, a book on tape or something, but anyway, we appreciate the, the opportunity. I've got about a two-and-a-half-minute video I wanted to show, and then I'm going to get up and preach for as long as I can. There's usually some talking involved, so it makes a little bit more sense when you got that, but uh, we'll show it at the end. That's fine. Um, <clears throat> turn your Bibles, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 6. Um, I didn't realize they were going to sing that song, choir. Awesome job in that song. Uh, here am I. I heard that song when I was 15 years old, and it was not necessarily through that song, but through the message that was preached, and then that song was sung at the invitation that I surrendered my life to be a missionary, and so it's, uh, it's definitely... Um, uh, it was sweet to hear that song, and you did such an awesome job. And, and we're going to look at the text tonight that that song is based on, or one of the texts that it could be based on. We see in uh, 1 Samuel 3 when, um, when Samuel's a young boy, and um, he hears the word of God, he hears God calling him, and he says, hear mine. He goes to Eli, and, uh, and Eli's saying, no, no, I didn't call you. You know, go back to bed. And he comes again and again, and finally he says, it must be God calling you when he, when you, when he, uh, when he calls you again. Say, hear my Lord. Uh, and that, that was said. And then here in Isaiah, we see that same phrase, that here am I. Um, I want to ask you this evening, how big is your God, Christian? How well do you know him and how ready are you to serve him? Uh, let's read really quickly the first um, eight verses of Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah 6, Isaiah 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings with twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved, and the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much for uh, the faithfulness of your people coming out again a second time on a Sunday, Lord, to uh, sing about you, Lord, to hear your word preached, Father. Though I may not have the... Most eloquent words to convey it, Lord, I pray that as you have promised us that your word would not return back void, that we would take this picture 
this vision that Isaiah saw of you high and lifted up, Lord, and that we would think about who you are this evening. We ask these things in the name and authority of your son, Jesus. Amen. As we look at this, uh, this section of scripture, Isaiah was a young prophet at this time, and uh, the, the nation of Israel was a divided nation right now, and, and we're looking at the southern kingdom of Judah. It was in the 8th century B.C., um, and we see this statement at the beginning here. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord. And this is more than just a date on a calendar. Uh, it's a designation of the circumstances that were happening in Isaiah's homeland at the time. Um, Uzziah was one of the, uh, the, the great kings of Judah. He had reigned for 52 years. Can you imagine if Lyndon B. Johnson was still alive and was president from 1968 until today? That's what it would be like. Can you imagine all of the history of our country and the presence that we've had? Since that time, can you imagine if that was one ruler? And that's what it was. And we see that it was a time of prosperity. Uzziah had conquered the Philistines and other neighboring countries around him. And he had built uh, Judah up to um, a, 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 a spot of prestige. We see that it was also a time of uncertainty. To the north, the Assyrian Empire was growing strong. And they were threatening the northern kingdom of Israel at that time. And just a few, few short years after this uh, this, this takes place. We see that Assyria actually does come uh, and, and, and invade uh, Samaria and Israel's southern kingdom. Uh, we also see there was a time of superficial worship. The Bible says that Uzziah did not destroy the high places. There were people that would go and, and give worship in the temple and give lip service to God, but then they would go back home and give, uh, uh, give, give worship to pagan idols. And this kind of all came together in this perfect storm of this sentence here that in the year that King Uzziah died. Imagine to us, for us, it would be like in the year that Pearl Harbor was bombed, in the year that JFK was assassinated. That's, that's what it would be like. So I want us to try to kind of get our minds into the, the, the history of the time. Um, I would imagine that the news would quickly spread from town to town and that the king was dead. What will become of us now? The people probably wondered, what's going to happen? Uh, then we see, though, that in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw also the Lord. Isaiah's gaze was diverted from an empty throne to an occupied throne, the king of heaven. For all of earth's history, power has been passed from hand to hand, from Genghis Khan to Alexander the Great, from Rome to England to America. There has always been power passed, but there is no God who ages, becomes decrepit, and then passes the throne by death. Our God is God from everlasting to everlasting. He is the first, the last, the Alpha, the Omega. He is the only eternal king. He has one telescope with which he sees everything, his omniscience. He has one bridge with which he crosses everything, his omnipresence. He has one hammer with which he breaks everything, his omnipotence. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. And like Isaiah, we need to learn that large armies, walled cities, and political diplomacy are not the forces on which the welfare of our nation rests. In the time that we live in of prosperity and also uncertainty, in a time of superficial worship among many Christians even, we need a fresh vision of our king high and lifted up and seated on his throne. Our nation has no deep sense of sin because we have no clear vision of who God really is. Our greatest need is to see our Lord, our king. And then like Isaiah, we need to fall on our faces and repent. So I want to see, look at a couple glimpses, seven glimpses of God that we see in his vision. He invites us to share his vision in Isaiah 6. And I believe in the story we see later on in John 12. I won't turn there for the sake of time, but... Um, Jesus retells this story, and I believe in this story that Isaiah is seeing a, a picture of Jesus, because Jesus says that in John 12. 
We see, number one, that God is alive. Uzziah, the king, is dead, but God lives on. The Bible says in Psalms 90, verse 2, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. God is alive. Before this world ever began, before he spoke this world into existence, he was and he will be. God was the living God. Uh, in 1966, when a man proclaimed him dead in Time Magazine, put it on his cover, he was still alive. And he will be living 10 trillion ages from now, when every man, woman, and child on this earth today will have passed on. Amen. There's not a single head of state in the next 100 years that will still be in power. They will all die. Their mortality rate is 100%. In 100 years, all of us more than likely probably will be off of this planet and it will be inhabited by billions of other new people. But God is still alive. He never had a beginning and therefore he depends on nothing for his existence. He always has been and he always will be alive. I see that God is alive. Then I see that God is authoritative. Look at what he says. He says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. There is no spot in the scripture that we ever see God sitting idly by. There's no picture of heaven where God is mowing his lawn or getting some work and some chores accomplished. It doesn't happen because God is authoritative over all. Heaven is not coming apart at the seams. God is not at his wit's end as we look around this earth and as we see sin reigning on this earth. And as we see this time that he has given uh, Satan to have power over this earth, God is not worried. God is not fretting god is in control we do not give god authority over our lives he has it whether we like it or not he is the supreme court the legislator and the chief executive all enrolled into one after him there is no appeal he is the judge i see god is alive i see god is authoritative then i see that god is omnipotent omnipotent means having unlimited power able to do anything our god can do anything that he wants The throne of his authority is not one among many. It is high and lifted up. The Bible says, look at this. I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. Every throne of man that has ever been raised will fall and has fallen. Every empire that has come onto this scene has thought that they were going to rule this earth or conquer this earth. And maybe they conquered many portions of it, but they could never conquer it all. And yet we have a God we serve that is high and lifted up, sitting on a throne that can never be touched by any man. And we saw in the Bible, Tower of Babel, as man tried to get and try to get himself up to God. And we saw what happened there countless times. We see that throughout history. God is omnipotent. No opposing authority can nullify or take away the decrees of God. What God purposes to do, he accomplishes. Isaiah 46.10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, God says this, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. God says, I'm going to do whatever I want. I don't care what you think about it, I'm going to do my pleasure. Daniel 4.35, and all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. We are nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? We often do that, don't we? We say, what are you doing, God? But God says, and thankfully we serve a merciful God that allows us to do that, but he says in the scripture, none can say unto him, what doest thou? We don't have the authority to do that. To be gripped by the omnipotence or the sovereignty, the all awesome power of God is either comforting to us because we are believers or it should be terrifying to us because the bible calls us an enemy of god i hope tonight that we are all believers that we have trusted jesus as our savior so that when we see in this scripture when we see this picture that isaiah paints of god high and lifted up that instead of terrifying us it should embolden us because we are servants of that king we see god is alive god is authoritative god is omnipotent then i see that god is magnificent 
Look there in the scripture. I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Yeah. I'm sure you've probably had weddings. In fact, actually, I've attended a wedding here. Now that I think about that, uh, my brother, older brother Caleb married Bethany Butler. And so a number of years ago, I was, man, man it must have been about 10 years ago now. They're getting old. Uh, I remember, you know, coming to this auditorium. In fact, I think I was standing about over here as the Grimson, although I've got um, three brothers, so I was probably way over here. But as we sat here, and I'm sure you've probably seen uh, uh, weddings that happen in this church, and you see that it seems like sometimes it's a competition with the bride of who can have the longest train, right? And you'll see them coming down the aisle, and the bride might be halfway through the auditorium, and you see her train still out there in the door, right? Cause it, and it's a beautiful thing when you see it on a bride, but can you imagine this? That God's robe is filling the temple. How amazing is that? Could you imagine if God was here tonight and his train, his heavenly robe was just everywhere filling this whole place. The fullness of God's splendor shows itself in a thousand little ways through his creation. I've got, can you show that other video we've got? Let's see if it'll work. There's some, some fish. I know this is funny, fish, but there are species of fish who live deep in the sea and they have their own built-in lights. Take a look at these things. Some have lamps hanging from their chins, and some have luminescent noses. They call them bioluminescence. And there are these thousands of these little fish that are, live deep in the ocean where basically no light can penetrate, and the pressure is so great. And up until, I mean, just a number of years ago, we had no idea that these creatures even existed. And yet, think about this. Thousands of years ago, when God created this earth, he created that little thing that looks like an alien to us. And he knew that we were not going to see that thing for a couple thousand. Look at this thing. I mean, it looks like something out of a movie or something that someone would, could barely even dream up in their own head. And yet there are probably thousands of different species of these fish that are sitting there at the bottom of the ocean. And it took us a couple thousand years to see them and to marvel at them. Why did God do that? Because we serve a magnificent creative God that would allow us to see things like this that we could see with our own eyes or things like this that took us a long time to get special machines to get down to the bottom of the sea to see it because God is awesome as we look around us I think we get so stuck as we live especially like this where you live in an urban environment and we and we and we get in our cars every day and we uh, we, we we check our phones and we check on sports center and we hop in the car and we listen to the radio and we get to work and we work all day and we drive right back home and we get into our house and we see our family and we watch TV or we spend time, whatever we do, and we, we very rarely get a chance to marvel at how awesome God's creation is. God is magnificent to think of those things. God is alive. He's authoritative. He's omnipotent. He's magnificent. And then I see that God is revered. Look there with me. Above it stood <coughs> excuse me, the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet. It's a tough word to say, twain. And with twain, or two, he did fly. No one really knows what these strange creatures really, really are. But given the grandeur of the scene and the power that we, 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 we see here, we, I think we, we do a disservice and we let culture dictate what we, what we think. And we think of maybe an angel as a, a chubby little baby angel with little wings and a, and a diaper, right? That's, that's how the world will portray a, an angel sometimes. And that, that shouldn't be how we think of it. Because think about this, this creature. According to verse 4, one of them speaks, the foundations of the temple shake when this creature speaks. We would do better to think of, I don't know if you've ever been to an air show and seen the blue angels fly in formation. Have you seen it? Okay. If not, you should. And when they come in front of you, you hear that sound barrier crack and you hear that boom. 
as you hear the sound barrier being broken. If you imagine, that's probably more like what had happened when this guy spoke, that the, the foundations of the temple shook when this angelic being spoke. These aren't puny little creatures. They're magnificent ones. And, and the point is this. Not even those creatures can look upon the Lord, nor do they feel worthy even to leave their feet exposed in his presence. So these guys have six wings. It's a pretty wild-looking creature. And with two of them, they're putting them in front of their feet because they don't want their feet to be shown. And with two of them, they're putting them in front of their face because they do not feel worthy to look upon the Lord as he's high and lifted up. And with two of them, they're flying around so they can move. Think about that. How awesome is it? As great and good as these beings are, untainted as we are by human sin, they revere their maker in great humility. An angel, as we see in scripture, when often when an angel would come and, and visit a man, it would terrify them because of their power. But angels themselves hide in holy fear and reverence from the splendor of the God that we serve. How much more should we shudder and quake in the presence of a holy God who cannot even, than, than those angels? So we see God is alive, authoritative, omnipotent, magnificent, revered, and we see that he's holy. And one called to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The word holy is the little boat in which we reach the world's end in the ocean of language. The possibilities of our language to carry the meaning of God eventually run out and spill over the edge of the world into a vast unknown. Holiness, that word carries to the brink, and from there on the experience of God is beyond words. That word holy is the only word, in our, it's, it's the best word in our English language that we can give to talk about God is holy. But yet that word isn't even enough for us to understand how holy God is. Christian, have you ever prayed? And as you prayed and gave reverence, worshiped, as you bowed down and gave reverence to God, as you spoke, praised him about who he is, about what he's done for you, about what he's done in this world, have you ever got to the point where you couldn't form a word because you were thinking of how amazing God is, how holy he is. He's incomparable. His holiness is incomparable. It determines all that he is and does and is determined by no one else. His holiness is what he is as God, which no one else is or ever will be. The Bible says, be holy as I am holy. We could never measure up, but we're supposed to try as much as we can. Call his majesty, his divinity, his greatness, his value as the pearl of great price. In the end, our language runs out, and the word holy, we run out of words able to describe him. We see he's alive, authoritative, omnipotent, magnificent, revered, holy. And then the last observation I see is that God is glorious. Look there. Before the silence and the shaking of the foundations and the smoke, we see the final, the final thing I see about God is he is glorious. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The glory of God is the manifestation of the end result of God's holiness. Because God is holy, he is glorified and has to be. God's holiness is the perfection of his divine nature. His glory is the display of it. So because God's nature is holy, his glory displays it. God is glorious means that God's holiness has gone public. Everybody can see it. In Leviticus, God says, Then Moses said unto Aaron, This is that it that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh to me. And before all the people, I will be glorified. Amen. There's no if, ands, or buts. I will be glorified. When the seraphim says the whole earth is full of his glory, it's because from the heights of heaven you could see the whole world. From down here, our view of the glory of God is limited. But it's limited largely by our view of God. 
Uh, there was a story, an old theologian said it. He used an example. He said, if, and this was before electricity, but if you're riding in a carriage and you're riding down this lane and all, all along the lane you've got these, these uh, lamps, these gas lamps that are lit. And as you're riding to that carriage, you should be able to see the whole night sky and see God's creation, but you can't because the, the lamps are so bright. But if the Holy Spirit of God or the wind would come and blow those lamps out and you were pitched into darkness, no artificial light around, you could see all of those stars that God placed there by his word, you would see the glory of God. And I fear, Christians, that we, we miss out on so much about who God is because we, we've got those lamps on. We've got those lights on and we don't ever get a chance to blow those lamps out and to put the, the phone away and to put the technology away and sometimes even to, to put the family away and get out on your own somewhere and look up into the sky and see the glory that God has given us. Someday God's going to destroy and turn away every competing glory. At this point, he is allowing competing glories to reign on this earth, but one day he's going to destroy them all. And every man, woman, and child and creature that has ever walked the face of this earth will know in awesome splendor the glory of God. But there's no need to wait, Christian. As we see Job and Isaiah here and many others have humbled themselves, as Isaiah did, to go after a holy God. And when they have been able to see God's majesty and glory, it has changed them. Jeremiah 29, Then shall ye call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me. And I will hearken unto you, and ye shall seek me and find me, when ye shall search for me with all your heart. I hope, I'm preaching to myself tonight, I hope that we are searching after God with all of our heart. So what happened to Isaiah? Really quickly, we see the affected vision on Isaiah. He says, woe is me. Look there in verse 5. So, so Isaiah sees this incredible picture. He sees God high and lifted up. And he sees these angelic beings giving glory to God. Then Isaiah says, then said I, woe is me. That should be our response when we look at a holy God. Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then look what happens. Then flew one of the seraphims unto him, this angelic being, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth, Isaiah's, and I said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thy iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. And then we see what happens. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. When Isaiah saw himself in God's light, he saw his sinful state. There were these angels veiling their faces from God's glory, crying, holy, holy, holy. Isaiah says, like we should, I'm a man of unclean lips. Unclean lips reveal an unclean heart. The Bible says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. The reason we have unclean lips is because we have wicked, wicked hearts. That's always the result of seeing God for who he really is. When I see God for who he is, I see myself in his light. When you see the light of the gospel, when we see the light of God, when we truly see God and through his scripture who he is, we have nowhere to hide. When God's light, so to speak, comes on us, it illuminates everything. Every wicked crevice of my heart is shown in, in, in the presence of an almighty God. The man who is proud has not yet had a vision of God, as Pastor spoke about this morning. We feel so totally unworthy, like Isaiah did, to ask for help because of our sin, like Isaiah did. But look what happens. We see what happened to him. He saw God's love and grace. A seraphim comes and brings this live coal from the altar, touches Isaiah's lips with it, and he proclaims, This has touched thy lips, and thy iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. 
The first thing God does is to remove that which would hold you away from him. When we humble ourselves like Isaiah did and realize how unclean we are, God takes that guilt, that sin away from us. I see God and I feel drawn to him, but I see my own guilt and I feel shut out like Isaiah did. The Bible says there's nothing good in us. It is only by the mercy and sacrifice of Jesus that our sins are forgiven and we have forgiveness. Just as that live coal cleansed Isaiah's sin, so does what Jesus did on the cross cleanse us and allow us access to God. That story there is an amazing picture to me of salvation. Ephesians 2, but now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Then I see that he finally heard the call of service. Who will go for us? God had a purpose and a plan for Isaiah and for that world. And as you see later on in that, in, that, in that scripture, Isaiah didn't get an easy task. He volunteered before he knew what he was signing up for. And it wasn't an easy task to go and preach to a hard-hearted people until desolation happens. But he has elected to use us as human instruments for him. And we've got to allow ourselves to be used. We need to, as the song sang tonight, as we see Isaiah said, here am I, send me. We need to allow him to use us. The amazing thing that I see about the gospel, and I probably say this every time I preach, is that from the foundations of the world, before God spoke this universe into existence, he knew who you would be, he knew who you would marry, he knew who your children would be, he knew every intimate detail about us, and yet still created us, still allowed Adam the opportunity to fall, still gave a redemptive plan through his son, even though he knew what the end result would be. And as Jesus ascended up into heaven and gave his last commands, it is God's plan to use wicked, deceitful, hard-hearted people like me and like you to accomplish his mission until he returns. That should encourage us that God knew everything about us and yet still chose to use us to get his commission to the world until he returns. We are God's earthly instruments at this time. You matter. You matter to this church and you matter to God. And you have a part to play in this church, this local New Testament church to get the gospel to your Jerusalem and, and your Judea and your Samaria and then through like this week, missionaries that get it to the uttermost parts of the world. You have an opportunity to be a part of something huge for God in your life. The vision cursed Isaiah, the fire cleansed him, and he now placed himself at God's disposal. Just a couple questions, and I'll be wrap it up and be done. Will, will you be like Isaiah today? Will we see a picture of God high and lifted up? I hope maybe tonight, if, if you have an opportunity where, where you live, maybe go in your backyard, and maybe, maybe get as many lights off as you can, and look into the night sky as you drive around, and you see the leaves changing, and you see all these little details that a creative God gave us not just for our own pleasure, although for the, some of that, but for his pleasure. To give praise to him for what he did for us. Will we be in awe of his glory, of his holiness? Will we see how unworthy we are on our own? And will we be willing, like Isaiah was, to be used to fulfill God's plan on this earth? You have an opportunity this week, even, to be an encouragement to some missionary families who come in. That card that has their names on it. I've maybe been to one missions conference where anybody other than the pastor knew, knew my name. Um, and that's okay, but man, if you have an opportunity to go up to a missionary family and know their name when they walk in the door, that's going to be an encouragement to them. As you endeavor, and, and I hope pray this week, um, for what you might be able to be, do for world missions this year, um, I, I hope, you, like Isaiah, you'll say, Lord, 
here am I, send me. Maybe one of you young people or an adult in this room. And I know we, this, that's the awesome thing about this church, seeing people out of this church go into the mission field. Would you be like Isaiah? Maybe God's not going to call everybody to leave this local body and go elsewhere. But God might be calling you to go and witness to a neighbor this week. God might be calling you to go and see how much you can sacrifice for the sake of his gospel. God might be calling you one day to go and serve him, whether it be here in the U.S. or around the world. I hope and I pray that like Isaiah, even though Isaiah didn't know what he was getting called to do, and he had a tough job after God did tell him what he was going to get called to do, that we would be willing to lay down our lives for the sake of the gospel, that we, like Isaiah, would say, Lord, here am I, send me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much for your word, um, Lord, that gives us so much truth. Father, and thank you.